Harrison's recording on his phone on his uh-huh. chest. Oh no, he's holding his phone. Oh, I could do it on my chest. Would that make you I mean, however you want to do it, buddy. It looks beautiful. Is that good? If you hear any random jingles or anything, Harrison's dog sitting right now. So yes. there might be a cute little pooper who scratches himself or something in the background. That's what they're that very, is. They're very well, maybe. I like that you can see my levels when it's on my chest. I can this see the me... levels on your phone recorder. This makes anyway, me feel very Darth Vader. Whatever. Vader-y. Welcome to the show. Uh, hi. Hi. <laughs> Chris, what's the what name are... of the show? Oh, God. What, what, are we, what are we doing here? Welcome to Nigh Unwatchable. There it is. So today we're watching. <laughs> That's it. That's, all right. That's it. Yeah. All right. I mean, you know, I'll put an intro song in there somewhere. <laughs> You're listening to what you shouldn't see. This is not unwatchable. Like what? What the fuck, man? Like, don't out me. <laughs> yes, this is the show. Um, it's a good chair. That's me. That's Chris. Um, Hello. Today we're watching a movie that um, that was honestly surprising. Mm-hmm. I am excited to talk about this movie because it is technically a very well-made film but it is also uh a deeply problematic and bigoted movie oh yeah (laughs) big time uh we're watching brian de palma's 1983 1983 film i believe 1980 flat baby 1980 flat really okay 1980 film dress to kill starring michael kane angie dickinson and i believe nancy something i want to say myers but it's not nancy myers it is not it is not nancy <laughs> myers um it is nancy allen is the other nancy one. allen yes <clears throat> thank you and and michael kane did I not already say Michael Caine? No, you did. <laughs> that, was, that was the joke. <laughs> Michael, like, actually, Michael Caine. There's in something a, to be said in there. A dual role. There's something to be said there for the lack of a dual credit in the end credits, which I do have thoughts about. But we'll mm. get there when we get to the end of the movie. Mm. This is a movie. We're going to do this episode a little differently because it's a Brian De Palma film. And as Harrison and I just discussed before this episode started, Brian De Palma films are their length usually has to do with like the juicy shots that De Palma likes to take. He, the man just loves a extremely slow mm. tracking shot that oh, like boy, lasts for like a full <laughs> 30 seconds. Right. So like that is probably half the movie. And not and not Which is like... why when I describe this movie you're going to be like that's an hour and 45 minutes. Yes yeah. it is, even yeah. though the plot fits into like a 10 minute description. <laughs> yeah. It it like in and, and not you may be thinking of tracking shot like Say the famous one in Goodfellas that does an excellent job of like establishing the club. They're not like that, you know. Like it's not. They're not, not a useful. clear purpose. <laughs> right. 
right. There's not a clear purpose for why you're not cutting. It's just like, isn't this technically impressive that like I haven't made a cut? It's like, I mean, yeah, I guess. Like, is there a reason yeah. why you're not making a cut? No, I just wanted to prove that I could do it. Okay. This movie is written by Brian De Palma as well as directed by him, which I think is Ooh, a little interesting. Yeah. It little... also, I'm not sure about the, excuse my little, my little belch. Um, oh, I didn't I'm not sure about it. the, the people who, um, oh, who's it? It's someone Watts is, is the guy who produced it. I'm pretty sure. Uh, oh no, that's Indiana Jones. I take it back. Uh, that, that is Indiana Jones. <laughs> this was produced by George Leto. George Leto. All mm-hmm. right, well, that doesn't ring any bells for me, but he may be on other De Palma movies. Anyway, let's jump in. This movie, mm-hmm. I'll set the stage real quick. We're going to run through it, and then we're going to get into the juicy bits. So this movie opens with basically what I what I can only describe as a scene that doesn't exist, but it does exist <laughs> at the beginning of the movie. But the characters in the, in the scene... Uh, I, I, the movie opens with full vagina. There, I'll just say it. The movie yeah, opens and no and two you ways just, about it. it's this long tracking shot of a of a of a bathroom. We're entering the the threshold of a bathroom, mm-hmm. and there's a man shaving with a towel around his waist in the sink, mm-hmm. and a and a full fully nude woman in her mid forties, I think, is what we're supposed to think. I don't know if that's actually true. Played by Angie Dickinson, mm-hmm. fully nude in the shower showering she's looking over at the man in in the towel shaven and she kind of gets her hots on we get our our full-on close-up vag shot and she starts touching herself and then suddenly a figure looking like another woman it looks like from Mm -hmm. behind her fully clothed with leather gloves somehow grabs her from behind and she starts screaming and like her husband doesn't notice and then we cut away this scene does not occur as an event in the plot of the movie. This is yep. just like a random scene that I guess is supposed to like artfully the idea. foreshadow where we're going. <laughs> yeah. I, it's it's a really bizarre choice. <laughs> because Angie Dickinson in this, the, again, this is the opening of the movie. Yeah. Angie Dickinson is about to be like a a vital character for the next like 30 minutes of the film. Yeah. <laughs> but we just watched her die. So clearly that didn't happen. I don't know. Anyway, No, she, it, she... it is it is very strange because like it's not at no point does it does it very clearly establish like oh that was a dream or something. It's just like title card and then the movie just continues and you're like, "Oh." Mm-hmm. Okay, so I guess we began with like a highly abstract version of events that you're then going to tease out, I suppose. Yeah, I, I, I don't what know what it feels what it like was. to me is Brian De Palma really wanted this scene. He wrote this scene, and uh, there was no place for it based on the rest of the movie he wrote. Mm. So he decided. So he just shot it just... anyway. <laughs> yeah. So he's like, "Well, I'm just going to put it at the very front." Yeah. <laughs> It, it it's and, it's odd. like I I suppose it establishes that she's sexually frustrated, but like every single like that's that's the first. So when I was watching it, that's what I took away from it. Right? I was like, okay, I guess that's what we're supposed to get from that. Fine, continue. 
Except for that everything that she does, everything that she says, every action that she <laughs> takes very clearly expresses her sexual frustration. So, like, I don't really understand why. I totally agree. And you know what's <laughs> annoying is, like, Angie Dickinson does an incredible this is going to be the complicated part of talking about this movie because so many aspects of this movie are really well done and so mm -hmm. many of the parts that people played in making this movie they did mm -hmm. a great job at angie yeah. dickinson does a great job in this role yeah she is so sexually frustrated <laughs> in this movie and yeah. i fucking believe it and it yeah. is and it's great anyway so she goes she goes downstairs angie dickinson does and we don't really see this guy who, who was shaving, assumedly her husband, anymore. But clearly she went downstairs, so whatever happened up, up there in the bathroom, she didn't get murdered. These scenes are not connected. This is kind of like a, now we're in a real world day. Yeah. And Angie Dickinson comes downstairs to find her son who's like working on an early computery invention thing. The whole point is to say this kid's really nerdy and smart and he works too ambitiously hard on stuff because she's like what have you been up all night working on your computer and the kid's like what what why well, yeah whatever I... and then she's like we gotta go do a thing together which <laughs> never materializes and he's like fine um <laughs> i don't understand how old this like her I get son the sense is this supposed, kid is supposed to, be. to be like 17 18 that's what i thought like Early but they on, do not tell us. No, A, they don't tell us. And B, later in the film, the, the, the so they, they're living together, obviously, because she comes downstairs and, like, he's there. Mm -hmm. But then later in the movie, he has, like, the agency of an adult and is, like, going around and doing things that you're like, okay, are you a young adult? I don't understand, like, how you have this drive for revenge. We'll get there. We'll get there. But I, yeah, it just, that's actually it, one of the aspects really of this movie I actually me. really like, but not for how it fits with the story. But uh -huh. I'll get, I'll I'll get to that in when we when we start talking more about it. So anyway, Angie Dickinson goes, um, goes to an appointment. It is mm -hmm. a therapy appointment with her therapist, her psychiatrist, played by Michael Caine, who is playing Doctor Elliot. Yes. And, <laughs> and uh, basically she is, you know, talking about how she's annoyed with her mom, you know, normal whatever therapy shit. And it ends with her being basically saying, you know, like, hey, I don't like having sex with my husband. He's not very good at it. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then she kind of like subtly propositions Dr. Elliot for sex. And Michael Caine's like, you know, no. And she's like, well, don't you think I'm hot? And he's like, yeah, but I'm married. And like, that's obviously an ethical boundary for me as a therapist. And and she's like, all right, fine. Whatever, I guess. And he's like, okay. Well, but so then I, Michael, I do want to point out there that like his first concern is that like he's married, which is a concern, but like the ethics of sleeping with a patient do seem to come second. You know, like, like that is not as oh, well. yeah. It's like, I'm a married man. It's like, well, she's also, you know, you're treating her. That's, that's a big fucking part of that. Throughout this movie, <laughs> ethics come second. There is like almost not a time for any character in this movie where ethics are primary. No, um. <laughs> no, no. 
So, like, yeah, she leaves, and then she she had said at the beginning of her therapy appointment, I have to go to the museum because there's some exhibit I want to see. So she leaves the appointment when it's done, and she goes to the museum, and she's sitting there, and she's looking at these paintings. And I am not going to lie to you, Harrison, this this is pretty early in the movie. I don't know mm-hmm. how far in we are. Maybe we're 15 minutes in at this point. If, if that, yeah. I loved this scene. Mm. I am just not going to pretend like I did not love this scene end to end. She yeah. is sitting in the in the museum and she is not she is alone on a museum bench and she is just looking around, people watching and looking at the art in the museum and the way this is shot and like the the museum stillness of it all with like the very distant dialogue of other characters of like a mom pulling her kid to like move along or like two teens like kind of stealing kisses as they walk through the halls and, and shit like that and then then her just looking at different paintings and the paintings like looking back at her mm. so good this was it, it, it's it was it was good it was re- it, was it really like good. really made me feel like i was in the space which uh-huh. is and it takes its time it does this for like a little while i don't know how long exactly but maybe like two minutes like yeah. a pretty long time in in movie world mm-hmm. and then a dude, a brown-haired dude wearing dark sunglasses with a Michael Caney-looking face. Inside. <laughs> inside, mind you. He is wearing these sunglasses. Oh, yes. Inside. Sits down next to, next to Andrew Dickinson on the, on the bench and, <laughs> and does not speak. The dude is, like, taking, he's looking at a painting and he's, like, right, jotting something down in, like, his calendar or whatever. They are, he has chosen to sit, like, just close enough. Like, these, this closeness that's, like, this is just on the cusp of maybe being uncomfortable, but could also be, like, technically ignored. Yeah. Angie Dickinson, you know, like, is sitting there. She, like, crosses her legs. She's looking over at the guy. He looks over at her, and then he looks away. So then she sits there, and then she takes off her glove, which I think is supposed to... Brian De Palma, you know, is like this is the '80s, and Brian De Palma is an older man at this point. He's mm-hmm. he's not old, but he's getting up there. So I'm assuming this glove removal is probably from like an old movie language scandalous sort of thing. I think the idea is probably. like showing skin, yeah, right. But in the showing skin, she reveals that she has an engagement ring on. The dude walks away. She looks down, sees the engagement ring, is like, oh, fuck. Like, I was trying to be sexy, and clearly I, like, made it look like I'm married and I'm sending that signal. So she gets up and drops her glove that that she took off. She's like, okay, I'm gonna leave. And then she last minute decides, like follow this dude she's just not sure where she, where he went so he follow he, she like follows him she catches sight of him around corners yada 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 and well, then she's, she's like behind up, so she starts yeah 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 she starts like yeah yeah she's like literally following almost running no yeah. dialogue is be has been spoken yet yeah. in this scene and that's part of what makes this and now and we are clearly in i don't know what museum we're in but we are in a museum like the way this is shot can only be shot on location. Yeah. So she is like walking through this space and it's like, it's engaging. Like, I don't really like, there's this, obviously there's this weird sexual frustration and this weird, like wrestling of what you want mm-hmm. and what you know you shouldn't have. 
And she's like going for it. Like, I don't know. I, I just found it like a very engaging scene. Turns a corner, passes this dude. We see that she passes him, but she doesn't notice. Then she turns around and he's there and this kind of startles her. So she walks back the other way. And now he's kind of in pursuit. And they like go back through the museum. He grabs her glove, comes up to her, kind of touches her on the shoulder. This freaks her out. So she walks away because he got like too close without notice. Mm. But he was wearing the glove when he touches her on the shoulder. And then she walks away and she realizes that. So she goes back, but he's now gone. So she walks out of the museum like, ah, fuck it. And then like, and I don't get this. This must be like a, a rich person thing that I didn't understand. She's like, well, now I only have one. She's like looking outside the museum when she exits. Like, where is this guy? And she's like, well, I only have one glove. So she just like throws the other one on the ground. Like, these are like nice gloves. So I was like <laughs> a little surprised by that. And then notices the a glove flapping outside of a cab window. And she realizes the dude is holding this glove and flapping at the window out her. So she walks over to the window. He opens the door. She grabs the glove. Oh. He grabs her full hand. And yeah. she says something like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, I didn't realize you were trying to give me my glove. Something along those lines. And he just, like, full on brings her into the cab and starts making out with her without a word being spoken. Yeah. They do some sexy time in the cab. Panties oh, but are even that and left was on the floor. Like that was a really good shot. Like her, him, like that was the thing. And, and and this continues to be a problem with this movie is that you're so mesmerized by like the technical impressiveness of like the shot. The filmmaking that you're is like, incredible. This is really, this is very problematic because it's it like the shot starts from the outside and then you get pulled like in with her. Like into and then they the do cab. a nice cut, yeah. And then, yeah, so, like, it looks really good, despite the fact that you're like, did that man just, like, pull her into a cab to make out with her without her permission, and now, like... <laughs> and it's, like, it it is really, like, it is a frightening moment, but then, like, you kind of have this moment where Angie Dickinson, like, surrenders to the kiss, is happy to be um, wanted, and like, yes, it's very much like a James <clears throat> Bondy uh, type of kiss where like he just goes for it and she's like, resist. Oh, actually, I like it. Yeah. And then they go back to assumedly this guy's apartment. She's up there. They have sex. And then I am going to there are some details in this scene that maybe we can talk about later if you want to. I'm just going to skip over them. She has sex, she calls home, realizes, because they're just not important. Uh, That's fair. But she, it's funny, but she calls but... home, and... Uh, <laughs> you know the one I'm talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> um, and, and we can talk about it, but I think, let's just get through the plot. That's fair. Um, she, so she leaves, she basically calls home really quick to see if her husband's home he picks up the phone who is this she slams it down she's like oh fuck he's home it's mm. you know she's been out all day and now it's nighttime so she exits when she exits goes to the elevator and then um and then like she's going down some people get on and then like another woman gets on the elevator and and she realizes in the elevator that she left her engagement ring upstairs mm. So people get off the elevator, she starts going back up, but then this other woman who got on, uh, who is like as big as a man, blonde hair, giant sunglasses, you know, takes it's out Michael a razor. Kane. It's I Michael. mean, like it's, and it's, he it's takes it's out a very, razor. But like that's that's the thing is that there are some shots 
in this where like it very clever again where like the the blade is in focus so like the 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 lady is out of focus so you can't tell it's michael kane but that's not all of the shots like there are some shots where it's like that's that's Michael Caine, yeah. though. Like you're not yeah, making you get, any attempt to Michael mask. Michael Caine is also fact. like a pretty big guy, <laughs> so like I don't know how tall Michael Caine is, but he's definitely taller than like most of the other women in this movie. Yes. So it's obvious yes. <laughs> that it's Michael Caine for a number of reasons. Anyway, he has like an old-fashioned shavy razor, and he and he slices up Angie Dickinson with it, and then hides because the elevator doors open because we're still Mm -hmm. in an elevator right Mm -hmm. and it opens on a dude and a pretty woman and this dude sees the body in the elevator and like runs away (laughs) he's like fuck this and just runs away which doesn't say anything in retrospect when we get more details about who these people are does not make sense in the moment when you're seeing this for the first time no um this other woman is standing there, like, in shock and horror. Then she sees in the corner mirror of the elevator that there is a woman standing on the interior wall that she can't see with a knife. And then she's like, oh, shit. And, you know, there's this moment where she's like, reaches into the elevator to catch the door because she sees a body right. in there. And then she sees that there's, you know, this murderous killer with a knife razor thing. So she pulls her hand out. But then... uh the the woman drops the razor and it falls out of the elevator. So now this stranger has the murder weapon. Well, arguably worse, like when when the the woman outside the elevator notices the person with the razor, the person with the razor drops it and before the doors close, the person outside the elevator grabs the razor for some fucking reason. i actually i actually liked that because that to me felt there are a few moments in this movie that like technically don't make sense but totally make sense to me and that was one of those where it's like Mm. i think people i think i would do that i think a lot of people would do that not because they're thinking but because because how you're not not thinking thinking, Uh... when someone drops something what do you do you pick it up and she's already like crouching a little bit so it's just like she just like grabs the razor and pulls out it's like just an instinct move okay like i don't know i could buy i feel like i would do that in that situation like i can buy that not yeah i don't know i guess i guess i'm also just like such a uh, like i've been so trained on like true crime shit that i'm just like no why why would you like put your evidence all over like that's gonna give the cops a uh which of course, but <laughs> I'm thinking in the true crime sense uh, with like foresight and all of that, that you're right in the moment when all that this person knows is there's somebody hurt in the elevator. Oh shit. There's a second person also in the elevator. They just dropped something. Let me get it like away from them. Could also and that's the other like way. Like if you were thinking at all, critically in that moment that's what your thought would be right it would be to help that person that's fair and i'm saying like i don't even think it would be thinking critically i think it would just be like i just grab i'm one of those you know if i'm already crouching and someone drops something in front of me i'm just gonna pick it up i'm not gonna think twice about it (laughs) well and i do love that she only like screams it's like it only settles in what she saw like after the elevator door closes, mm. and then there's really, like a this, half by the way, beat. is Nancy Allen. 
Yes, this, this yeah, it, it would probably help if we refer to her. As... <laughs> I don't remember her character name, but it's Nancy. Uh, Liz. Uh... <laughs> Liz is the character name. Um, Liz, Liz, Liz grabs the razor, and then, like, as soon as the door shuts, it's like, ah! And she does great. I mean, yeah. that's the other thing. Everyone does great acting-wise in this movie. It's the writing and the directing that uh that really are the issue so she anyway fast forwarding we go to the police station not really that fast forwarding there's this cop you know detective marino and detective marino is uh you know trying to figure out what's going on but he realizes that like angie dickinson's a patient of dr elliot and that you know maybe Maybe there's some crazy that that met at at the office that wants to kill Angie Dickinson. And Michael Caine's like, first of all, he like briefly considers handing over all of his like patient patient documents about right. Angie Dickinson, which is insane, which is but... even though she's dead, a violation yeah. of <laughs> doctor patient confidentiality, which is like again to the point of like ethics always seem to come second in this movie. Yeah, but. Then, like, Marino wants to see his, like, entire appointments book. Mel Kane's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, it's like, no, why? I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm not doing that. But he's also, you know, it's it's a little... Clearly, we're supposed to find this a little suspicious. The problem is, if you know anything about the legal system, you're like, oh, I mean, he's not supposed to. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's not supposed to share that. Yeah. <laughs> so. That's not... That's suspicious that the cop would ask, not that he would say no. <laughs> Yeah, um, but Michael Caine meets um, Angie Dickinson's smart son, who is pissed in the precinct, um, and and he's like, hey, if you need to talk, you can talk to me, and the son is, like, kind of not really listening, doesn't care, him, is doesn't care about this guy, and is pissed that his mom is dead, and then Michael Caine references, like, his dad, who we assume is Angie Dickinson's husband, apparently not. He just throws in a little exposition that his dad died in Vietnam. This is his stepfather. God, that was so which I confusing, guess is like, dude. That is actually a useful detail for how he behaves later in the movie. But True. it is funny that that is just like thrown in uh, yeah. right now. Um, so Marino, yeah, basically. And the kid, Marino's talking to Michael Caine and, and the kid's sitting outside his office. And he, you know, remember, he's computer tech kid, right? So he's invented some kind of spy-like recording thing so he like puts a little stethoscope sticker to the wall and like a little earbud in his ear and he can hear the conversation which is not particularly useful it doesn't like really help him in -hmm. any way except for i think give him dr elliot's address maybe is like the most it could be helpful if that Mm -hmm. even happens in this scene (laughs) marino's like all right dr elliot i'll get a warrant or something and then he and then he sends the kid and the stepdad home and then he goes and he pesters nancy allen liz and is like hey technically looks like you committed this murder right you have no witnesses your prints are on the murder weapon you know what what do you want to do and she's like well no there was another witness there this john i was seeing so now we learn that she's basically a high class hooker yeah and that is why this dude must have run away because you don't want to be talking to the cops about a murder you witnessed when you're like why were you here and you're like well i was doing an illegal sex thing Mm. um so that tracks now in retrospect yes. <laughs> um yes and uh and he does a very cop thing here where marino not a very cop thing a very brian de palma thing and a very this movie thing which is marino leans on liz 
And he is like, hey, you need to get in touch with this John. You need basically to help me solve this case because the easy answer is that it's you. And like, it's clear that Marino doesn't actually think it's Liz because he wouldn't be letting her out to go like get him this information that he's asking for if he (laughs) thought that. Yeah. But like, he also is like letting her know it's like, I could wrap this up with you. Well, (laughs) as a result of the way that our legal system works, it is guilty until proven innocent. So I'm going to need you to provide (laughs) me with that evidence ASAP or else. Whoa, whoa, you did it. Yeah. So she, um, so anyway, so Michael King goes, we, Michael King goes back to his office at night. He's listening to his voicemails and we hear this little you know kooky voice come on american voice michael an american voice yeah and michael is speaking in a british accent as dr elliot during this movie this was in fact the only time that i like started to second guess oh wait was that (laughs) michael kane in in the wig and the sunglasses because i was like I, I've never heard Michael Caine do an American accent. I don't even know that he can do an American accent. Yeah, Maybe. I still don't know if he can. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they could have gotten someone else to do that voice, I suppose. But yeah, over the voice uh, the voice recording It's one of his patients. Thing, yeah, for his patients in his office, the, this guy's like, hey, like, you know, I'm going to leave you for another doctor. I'm going to get my gender-affirming surgery approved by this other doctor named Dr. Something or another. He says the name. Um, uh, Levy, I believe. Okay. Uh, also, I stole your razor. So then Dr. Elliot goes to his office drawer where I guess he keeps a drawer of knives and opens it up and sees that a razor is missing. You know, normal (laughs) office stuff. Not my favorite (laughs) razor. She's, she's got my favorite razor. She has. Yeah. And now Michael Caine's like, oh shit, this is like my former patient must have murdered my other patient what the bananas well (sighs) i'm like exhausted now talking about this movie (laughs) well because because i mean this part is very exhausting in particular because like it, it lays out that this is like a transgender patient of michael kane's and michael kane will not sign off on her gender reassignment surgery but then, right. like, no reasons are given for why, you know? Like, mm-hmm. it's it's just, it's just, which, it will, quote-unquote, make sense. It's just, like, the expression of anger on the phone, yeah. It, right, and it's just, like, <clears throat> the, it's like, well, if you won't do it, I'll find a doctor that will. And then we never get, like, any sort of reason in that moment for why Michael Caine has done so to begin with like he, he doesn't give any clinical explanation for like well you know she was actually displaying a bit of uh the old you know there, there's none of that it's it's very, which i mean this is 1980 but like it's very 1980 in the way that it treats like from the get-go you know that like the the transgender person is the villain of this entire film oh easily and and okay oh okay this is (laughs) i want to jump into like talking about the themes and the issues so much but i I also really want to like rush through yes i'm gonna do a rush through version of the rest of this plot if there's anything key that i miss totally interrupt me and like throw in the detail and then we'll fill in the other bits as we as we get into the meat of it after Mm -hmm. anyway 
<laughs> um, Nancy Myers, Liz, and this kid are both now trying to. They're both motivated to try to figure out the uh, the 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 mystery of of uh, of uh, Angie the Dickinson. The tall murder. blonde. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, this tall blonde that killed her. That's the only thing they know from Liz's description. So we and we also assume that this is a former patient. So the kid being smart, techie kid, like basically builds like a secret camera in a box that can like take pictures. It's almost a film camera. It is a film camera, but it's not like it's not full video. I think it's like take it. He has the frame rate set to take a picture every like four seconds or something. Yeah, yeah. So he goes and he sets like the camera on his on the back of his motorbike parked right outside of uh, Dr. Elliot's office so he can see this tall blonde patient enter or exit when when she might to identify that this is in fact a patient of Dr. Elliot's, which means there's a name in an appointment book, which we could maybe get. So that's what he's doing. He gets the picture and then he goes talk to goes to talk to Liz. Liz at this point, kind of at the same time that a uh, picture kid is is doing his stuff, is trying to get in touch with this John, the other witness. Doesn't work out. She goes back to Marino. Marino's like, "You need to bring me something." And she's like, "Hey, what about the appointment book? Um, you know, I actually met the son, and the son is taking these." picture oh no she doesn't say this excuse me what about she she meets up with the son he takes she sees his pictures but he's like hey don't you can go to the cops with this info about them getting a warrant to see the appointment book but you can't tell them that i'm involved in this because i'm also going to try to get in there and get the appointment book because i'm not waiting (laughs) for the cops to do their shit right because i'm a little kid who apparently understands that cops don't solve crimes and it's like all right he doesn't really understand that it seems like he's just acting like not acting in a performance sense it seems like he is just doing um which i kind of appreciate i think given the context that we now have for him that both of his parents are dead Mm -hmm. (laughs) i'm like i can see this i can see a 17 year old with both parents dead who is smart clearly and like doesn't need school to be skipping school to like solve his mother's murder like yeah obviously that's super far-fetched but it is not like crazy to me mm-hmm. i'll i'll believe it <laughs> but anyway he's like doing all this so liz goes to marina marina's like all right well guess what i can't get a warrant super fast so if you want to get that book uh, you know i'm yeah. just saying if yeah, you yeah, were yeah. paranoid about being blamed for this murder and you broke into Dr. Elliot's office and you found something that proved that it wasn't you who committed the murder. I mean, like, we probably wouldn't arrest you for breaking and entering and, like, because you'd have, like, solved this other case. But I, of course, Absolutely. cannot advise you to do that. You know, whatever. Totally. Um, That'll so, hold up so in court all day. Oh, uh, yeah. So she's trying to do this. Meanwhile, as, she, as she's, like, doing this, it becomes clear that the tall blonde is following her so we have car chase scenes we have the tall blonde waiting out of outside of her apartment liz is freaked out on several occasions trying to avoid this woman who always seems to magically be there we find out the reason is and i actually think this is a smart part of this movie that is underutilized. uh we find out later at the very end that one of the women 
who is like chasing and following Liz is actually a cop. Yes. Who has been assigned by Marino to keep tabs on her, who also is like blonde. And well, then there is the tall blonde who wants to kill her and is waiting outside her apartment. So she'll travel home and is followed by one blonde lady who is trying to keep an eye on her. And then yes. she gets home and there's a murderous blonde lady there waiting for her. So she feels like she's really trapped. The best part of one of these chase scenes that if you don't, I, you seem like you had a point. Do you want to jump in before I, no, I want to go on the subway chase scene. Real it's, quick. it's just, <laughs> absolutely. It's just that like that, that was where the movie was really starting to confuse me. And I was starting to call bullshit because like earlier in the elevator scene, because it was impossible. Tall, exactly. Cause the tall blonde is Michael Caine. Like, I know that I'm not, as the audience, supposed to know that in the elevator scene, but, like, I fucking know what Michael Caine looks like, you know? Like, yeah. putting him in a wig and sunglasses is does not change the shape of his face that much. Right. Like, I, that's Michael Caine. But then, like, one of the ladies chasing her later is not Michael Caine. And I know that. So, like, <laughs> so I was sitting there being like, you're fucking cheating. You're cheating because you're using a different actor, even though I know that, like, these characters are supposed to be the same. But then the reveal later is that it's like, oh, these are two separate characters as well as two separate actors. I was like, yeah, I'll, Which I'll, think is I'll like, allow it. <laughs> it's like this, it's an underhanded way of of trying to get the audience to think it's not Michael Caine because yeah. there is totally an understanding that like, you know, it's Michael Caine in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's like, this is but this like weird way of being like, maybe, yeah. yeah, maybe it's not. So she, so this cop woman basically is following her in a car. So she runs away in this car. She gets out of the cab. She runs into the subway. Now, <laughs> Michael Caine um tall blonde follows mm -hmm. her into the subway and and she is like trying to avoid so she's she's like walking farther and farther down the subway tracks and then she leans against a pole kind of touches next to some guys some some black guys who are just hanging listening to music and it seems like a like a whatever moment and then they like a bunch more black guys show up and they all kind of start like harassing her and there's like this weird like what is happening there's no it doesn't out of nowhere there's like mm -hmm. a weird gang rape kind of scenario unfolding so she's like ah black people what am i gonna do yeah. they're evil clearly because that's that's what happens when you're there's a white so woman many alone in the subway them. yeah so they of of course start chasing her so she runs in down the track and not down the track down the side down the subway station and then gets on a car when the train slides in and there just happens to be a cop there. Also black. I will get back to this. Mm. Um, <laughs> who is like, what? It, what's going on? She's like, there were these dudes. They were trying to attack me. And the guy like looks out the window, doesn't see anything. They both look one way, don't see anything. And then the camera shows us the other way and we see tall blonde get on the train. And then they look that way and they don't see anything. And... Like, oh, whatever. So she sits on the train, nervous. Cop watching is just watching her as the train goes. And then he looks over and the camera looks over and we see tall blonde in the car, like window in the, the border between train cars, looking like down at uh, Nan at Liz, not uh, 
you know, who doesn't see her. And then, um, and then we cut back to the cop who's looking at Liz and it's like this weird back and forth scene. The cop's like, okay, it seems like nothing's going to happen to you. We cut back to the car, um, connection point and mm-hmm. tall blonde is no longer there. So the cop's like, fine. The train rolls into the next stop. Cop gets off. This is like night city cop, by the way. So yeah. He gets off and then the train starts moving and then um all these all the same black guys like enter from the other end of the train and like show up and see her and you know start running down the train side to get at her so they come flying in and then she opens the door to get away and then tall blonde is there who tries to uh be murderous and kill her but then uh uh-oh kid um who has been looking up looking into the mystery of his mom apparently is here i we do not know any of the why he is here but apparently has also been following liz or or something and then saves liz by like pepper spraying tall blonde who then runs away with homemade pepper spray by the way they specifically tell us that he he invented his own pepper spray which he yeah it's fucking weird maces this person with fast forwarding again kid and liz basically are start working together and they hatch a plan for liz to go over and like basically seduce dr elliot for a minute and then in a moment where he's like prepping for sex she's gonna go get the files and then i guess like run them out to the kid who will yeah. have them or turn them into the cops or, or something do, he'll do his so she goes over there shit she takes off you know it's it's liz allen she takes off or nancy allen she takes off all of her clothes very sexy and whatever Ooh. and the whole point is like i'm trying to be sexy and michael kane's like i'm trying to be ethical and then <laughs> she's like all right well i'm gonna go to the bathroom and freshen up in my sexy undies and when i come back i hope you're naked basically so the kid not in the house not in the Mm -hmm. office or whatever is like peering in through binoculars Mm -hmm. and he is watching as michael kane suddenly starts doing weird stuff he's like starts changing who is this michael kane person it almost looks like there's like a woman in there now meanwhile liz is going through the files she finds the appointment book she gets the info she wants for the patient and we cut back to the kid who's now getting closer to the window because he can't tell what's going on. And now he's attacked by someone from behind and we can't see. And this is at the same time that a he realizes blonde. that Dr. Elliot has transformed into this tall blonde. Who then, of course, when Liz enters the room again, you know, tall blonde tries to, to, murder, to murder Liz. And then someone from outside the window where the kid has just been attacked in some form or he's like been his mouth has been covered up by some stranger from behind a gunshot comes in through the window and kills um michael kane kills the tall blonde we wrap up our story at the precinct where basically we learn about the cop that's been following liz in addition to the blonde lady marino's like i knew it wasn't you but i needed you know to create this whole scenario in order to like get dr elliot and uh, and hooray and huzzah and we're all free and then liz is like sarcastically like oh thank you i love being like a, a play toy of the state and, <laughs> and Which, I mean, she's uh, right and, she's right and she's right yeah. and, the end. <laughs> and 
and Harrison, I'm sure there's some stuff, and and listeners, if you've seen it, I'm sure there's some stuff I glossed over there. But I wanted to get into you don't the themes. Wanna, and you don't want to do start... the, but you don't want to do the final scene when Michael Caine oh, oh, escapes right. from the asylum. I Harrison, I totally <laughs> forgot. Will you do the honors? Because yeah, this it's... scene is terrible. This is some <laughs> Friday. This is some Friday is the Thirteenth after... bullshit. So Michael Caine, yeah, has been has been put in Bellevue, and yes. because now now there is a lot of it should go without saying that there's a lot of like bigotry talk at the end here, Ooh, where they yeah. describe transgenderism. There's a few moments in the film where there's like transgender education time, and we'll get into a few more of those in a little bit. Mm-hmm. But like in this, it's just like very shitty. Where basically they're like, well. Elliot was transgender, so, like, his male half was warring with his female half, and every time his male half got aroused, his female half had to murder the woman that aroused him. Yes. Because it was, a, it was a sign that he was still a man. And it's just like, wow. I mean, for, like, insane. Just, like, yeah. not only insanely offensive, but also just, like... Wrong. So in, it's clearly it's wrong. <laughs> it's clearly like Simplistic. like you said, this movie came out in when nineteen eighty. Sybil, yep, the first major story about multiple personality disorder came out in a TV movie premiere in nineteen seventy six. Not Ooh. a surprise that like yeah. this is kind of how Brian De Palma approaches transgenderism, but it's also just like deeply wrong and fucked up. Yeah. Um, given how much. He also knows about transgenderism, given other educational moments in the film, which is interesting. Anyway, he's in Bellevue. Harrison, sorry, I'll shut up. He's in Bellevue. <laughs> no, he's in Bellevue, and then like he escapes, and he gets he and he, like, noise. sneaks into Liz's apartment and kills her. Uh, but don't worry, it was just a dream. And Peter is there to wake up Liz for some reason, which is also unexplained. Why are they together at any point in this movie? Just like in the beginning of the movie, the end of the movie ends with a murderous bathroom scene that did not happen. (laughs) Because, you know, symmetry, Chris. Symmetry. Yeah. For apparently symmetry's sake and nothing else. (laughs) Uh, They just wanted to have one last like little... (gasps) before it was before it was over but um Uh, yeah let's i want to talk about all the crazy themes of this movie i want to talk about the way the fact that brian de palma both wrote and directed this makes this very interesting to me in terms of the look at the themes of this movie and mm -hmm. the reason the the topic i want to start with here and i want to get your thoughts on this and then i'll expound my thoughts after is that this movie superficially is about transgenderism but what this movie is about is violence this movie is about the way people use violence and the way brian de palma unconsciously views correctly how the u.s operates as a violent violent system that uses violence as the base motivation or the base action point for like how we live our lives which is yeah. a really interesting statement for the movie to be making and one that it is clearly making like not intentionally but is also 
clearly making. Like, this is not like, a, I'm reading into it. It's like, no, that's what this movie is about. I just don't know if Brian De Palma realized that when he was writing it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not convinced given, like, the limited amount of time that I've spent with him that he knows that that's what he's saying, A. And B, that he even has the wherewithal to fully deliver that point in a satisfactory manner without just, like, going down this insane rabbit hole of, like, all right, so if this guy thinks he's a woman, then he then that means that the the male part of him needs to die in some way or be subservient. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about, man? Like, it I... Is, I, I God. It's... It's it's because like the whole time they're they're trying to convince us that like Michael Caine when Michael Caine is a woman is called Bobby. It's not super clear why. Yeah, I assume Bobby with an I, like you know. But whatever. I also assumed that. But the 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 whole thing that is laid out in like the super exposition heavy like little breakdown with the cops is that like it was true the message on the on the answering machine that michael kane left as bobby um saying like you won't let me get this transition surgery like m apparently michael kane's character the male side of him quote unquote won't let the female side yeah. <laughs> like out it's and that turns into murderous rage for reasons which, and I guess that's that's what's so fascinating to me about this movie from a thematic standpoint, because it is like it is super bigoted, and we have plenty to talk about when it comes to the bigotry of this movie. But it's also the way the way that interplays with characters' motivations and characters' um, actions, not even just their motivations, but their approach to agency is very mm. is very interesting to me because it's all based on various systems of oppression in a in an overt way not in like mm -hmm. a if we look at this academically this is how it's operating no in like literally liz is being like leaned on by mm -hmm. the state by a police officer to like do to solve this murder her motivation uh, to prove is, her innocence <laughs> her motivation is state violence it is the yeah. threat of state violence so interesting okay now we have like this weird now we have like this weird bigotry scene where where liz is running from this group of black guys where it's like this is these are people who are representing only and exclusively in this scene. Their only rhetorical purpose in the movie is to represent like violence. Right. But who saves her? It's a cop who is also black, who is, what is he? An arbiter of state violence. It is like, literally you have violence motivating her running away. Then then like this representation of state violence being this symbol of safety that Brian De Palma clearly wants. But even when he is representing a black American in a positive light, it is still within a framework that that speaks of violence, which is yeah. that of a police officer. And to add to that bigotry, let's move on to the queer bigotry. We have a queer character, a trans woman, whose only way of adequately expressing herself and dealing with the world around her is via violence. Just murder. <laughs> Just doing a casual murder. Just slinging a blade. Is... 
right? It is like absolutely bonkers how like in your face all of this stuff is throughout the movie and it is every it is either everyone's motivator and or the way you choose to respond or act in the movie and that leads me to like a point i wanted to make in reference to the kid thematically what is so weird about this theme of violence is this other theme of agency in the movie what i find Mm. so complicated in watching this movie and dealing with how bigoted it is mm-hmm. and dealing with these unconscious themes that admit the truth of our of our violent society and our violent uh, structures mm-hmm. culturally and legally but it doesn't consciously admit them it just like admits them de facto in the course of the movie and like doesn't really want to deal with them but then you have all these characters who have agency which even though I don't love the way characters are behaving and the ideolo- and the ideologies behind their decision making or the ideologies behind Brian De Palma <laughs> making them make whatever decisions is that even now even even in 2023 it is rare to see a new movie come out where every character has this level of agency the yeah. kid's mom dies and he fucking is like solving the murder Liz is like also solving the murder. Marino is like a cop with agency of solving the murder. You got the trans woman who is doing the murders. Like, there is like no character who has more than one line in this movie who doesn't have like a lot of agency mm-hmm. throughout the film, which is really impressive. Like, and and what that's what makes it so engaging. Like, I feel like the danger of this, if it wasn't so bigoted, it would be more dangerous if it was like mm-hmm. more subtle in its bigotry mm-hmm. because there is there is a level of like seeing all the characters, which makes this weirdly complicated because it's like, yeah, we're being really bigoted against black Americans and queer Americans, but at the same time, we're giving women more agency than I usually get to see women have in a movie. Right. Like we're giving children more agency than I usually get to see them have in a movie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like everybody's motivations are like completely self-consistent except for Michael Caine's character. Like, nothing about what Michael Caine does makes, like, any... Especially since then, when they even try to explain it in retrospect, it's like, but, that, like, no. That doesn't comport. You're telling me that he has to kill every person that he's attracted to that's female. Fine. That's not why he's hunting Liz. He's hunting Liz because she was a witness. Like, that. So even within your own weird fuck... Yeah. Like, very clearly uh, psycho-inspired slash fan movie. I mean, like, it's just, it's trying to take, like, Psycho, but without giving any of the background that Psycho gives us on, like, why it, you know? Like, it's, it's, it's a, yeah. it's a, it's unclear. Where I get uncomfortable with it is that whereas Psycho when he's dressing as his mother, it's not because he would prefer to live out that. It's like a manifestation of of his, like, insanity. This is like, you bring up the very fact that Michael Caine does want to live as a woman and is, like, trying to live as a woman, and then the male side of him won't, won't let... Like, yeah, it gets into this weird split personality, like the right hand doesn't know what the left <laughs> is doing. It, it's like, ah, this just doesn't... It's, 
none of this is making de- sense. Well, and and what it does, I guess I should have said this earlier when I was talking about kind of the the comparison of bigotry between Black Americans and queer Americans. But mm-hmm. what I'm what this is making me think of when you're saying this is it's about class. This is where the bigotry comes in, I guess, because it's about classifying her in the realm of trans is like her motivation like you said is about hunting liz down but when when bobby actually tries to murder liz when michael Mm -hmm. kane actually tries to murder liz it's after she is stripped down and has like turned him on so they do have a little bit of that reasoning but either way the message is the box is danger queer person is dangerous and it is it is because they are queer right it is not because it's like we try to use this weird split personality thing but it's not because they're trans it's because Uh, it's because just being queer makes you dangerous in the same way the subway scene shows us that just being black makes you dangerous inherently damn so so you are just these things and then this is like I'm, i'm glad we're talking about this because there's this moment in the movie where the characters are watching TV in a couple different locations, and they're all watching the same news story on... It's like an interview show with a trans woman. Mm-hmm. And she is talking about her experience of, like, being, a like, basically a war reporter. And, like, wow, you had a really masculine job, and now you're, like, a, a woman. And she's like, yeah, I, I did, and I am. And that's also, you know, common. I don't mm-hmm. actually think this is true, but, like, the fictional interview lady is like actually that's common with a lot of like trans women i know it's like a a lot of them did have masculine jobs i know a couple fighter pilots i know Mm -hmm. a former police captain i know you know a former uh marine and like all that kind of stuff what is in in terms of this scene in the moment looks like a almost edgy an, an an attempt at trying to be open-minded and educational (laughs) for the audience about transgenderism, but it isn't. And the reason I know it isn't is because of this theme in the movie of queer people are dangerous works its way into this interview. Because what are the jobs that all of these supposed trans women have before they transition? Jobs based around violence. They are therefore people of danger and people Mm. to be feared these are Mm. all of the trans women this person cites were people who literally like worked in in the military and in like police (laughs) yeah like precincts and shit it's like what like it is this overarching message of just like queer people bad and and i don't know it's uh, well queer people started to ramble (laughs) no no that's the i mean it's it's like there's there's it's like you're saying that there's this inherent violence within queer people that, like, to me, the implication, the larger implication that it's making is it's, 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 it, it attempts to take this sympathetic view of, like, oh, these poor people can't live how they want to live. So they're going to kill everyone about it. It's like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, hang on, hang on, hang on. Like the first, like I was tracking you for the first part of it. And then you went the extra step of being like, and therefore they're going to act on that. And they're going to, it's like, no, 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 no. You have taken several steps of logic that I don't believe you earned there. It's just so, it's so othering and it's so... 
I keep coming back yeah. to this train scene where she gets chased by by these black guys, and I think the reason is because there that's really the only, has pur- no the only purpose. The, yeah. yeah, the only purpose of this scene has to be realistically because she's already being chased, adding, right. and it's already a scary situation. So like we don't really need the two pe- the two groups after you at one time. So to me it really only is there as a point of comparison. It's America, we're racist, so you know, obviously it's going to be easy for the audience to accept black men as violent. Yeah. So now if I juxtapose that with trans women, you can more easily understand how they are the same, which is dangerous you know it's like because immediately after she gets away from this like you know rapey mob of men she is almost murdered by michael Caine. like immediately yeah yeah yeah. it is (laughs) (laughs) you just trade one one villain for the other i i just my favorite part about the subway scene is that the entire time i just wanted her to break away and be a you ain't nothing man you ain't bad you ain't nothing Little, well, little me too bad, now. <laughs> little bad reference for it for all you kids at home. Bet you didn't think you were gonna get an MJ reference, but I slipped it in there. Yeah, I I definitely didn't expect it. Now, um, it's not a. It is a very well made movie, but it's not a good movie. Yeah, I mean Brian movie. De Palma is a great director, and I am not trying like. There's a lot of negative shit to say about him after watching this movie in particular. But I'm not, you know, it's like, I'm not saying Face Off isn't fun and you shouldn't go watch, you know, whatever your favorite weird-ass Brian De Palma movie is. Caring They're all is weird great. as shit. Yeah. <laughs> They're super weird. They're all, like, this weird, but not all of them are this bigoted. <laughs> and, dare I say, angry. Yeah. There, there's an angry just, movie. Yeah, angry. If I don't ang- even know if it is an angry movie. I don't know if that's fair. I, I really, I don't think you Brian don't think De Palma so? is angry at any of his characters. I think Brian De Palma is trying to understand what he is talking about in this movie by writing this movie. But he is using the lens that he knows for life, which is like, you know privileged white man of power (laughs) that that's true i i viewed how the the like the the slaying in the elevator how kate died and just like the insistence on showing that in the way that it was shown and the fact that you Mm. didn't need to show that in the way that it was shown especially because like consider what it is obviously aping like it is damn near shot for shot a a recreation of psycho like the the shower scene we don't see we don't see like her getting all cut up in that we see blood going down the drain that's it that's it then you take this you know you have the same like even the music is doing the like type thing true and like you know, raising, like, the razor, all of that still happens. And then we get, like, full cuts of him, like, cutting her face and throat. And, like, ah, I don't know, man. I, I, I just, like, I was very uncomfortable by how incredibly slow moving the violence was in that scene. 
of like that just is true like the way that like he cuts I, I, for her face when it's like you didn't this is you're choosing to show me this for like no good reason other than like violence for violence sake Oh yeah, I mean Brian De Palma loves himself a a, a <laughs> sexy blood covered blood covered lady. Um, Boy does he. Or scene. Boy Which is how he. also I mean, yeah, that's how it ends, I guess, because Liz, after Michael King gets shot, is like standing there in her <sighs> scantily clad with like literally blood on her hands. Which would have been better if like thematically it made sense for her to have blood on her hands (laughs) instead i think it was just like for the image (laughs) which is a bit of a shame it is and this is still in the era of hollywood where like they haven't quite figured out how to make blood not look like red paint (laughs) oh because it absolutely is because it's just like fucking syrup with like ketchup mixed in it's just like there's a little too much orange in it you know what i mean like it's it's Mm -hmm. just like it's not it's, Which, frankly, it, I don't even know if that's a color with the prop or if that's a color with coloring at that time. Because ooh, there's a chance the blood actually looked great. They were just, like, struggling to make it look the same that's as a it good did point. in real life. That's a good point. Well, um, it's Well, not, this was a sad discussion, but I am glad. Sad. How How long did we go? Oh, we went, uh, we're over an hour. Look at us. Wow. We're special. We're special. I'm not going to lie. I liked this movie more than the typical shit because it really forced me to like wrestle with it like the way it was shitty i had to wrestle with as opposed to a lot of the stuff we watch in the show is like wow that's just horrible and And obviously horrible and (laughs) demonstrably so where you could just but like pinocchio is just there's no argument to be made right for like Oh, I actually like enjoy this movie. Like, if somebody said I like the movie Dress to Kill, I'll have some comments on it, but it's not just immediately like, "Are you out of your goddamn mind? What are you talking yeah. about? You <laughs> it's like not a it. shocker." Like, yeah, this is like I oh. actually have. I, I'd love to end the episode or help wrap us up with a story related to that because Please. one of my favorite early I, I one of my favorite early experiences moving to LA is meeting someone who I actually think one of our friends in high school knew pre this person being in LA but they um they had a party told me and this was like we were I forget what the conversation topic was but somehow it came up and they said that Spider-Man 3 we're talking the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man 3 was mm-hmm his favorite movie of all time and i laughed heartily and he looked at me as if i had slapped him in the face and i had to deal with getting out of a scenario where someone told me that spider-man 3 was the best movie and they meant right right (laughs) right right like i was ill prepared for that to not be a joke uh i i had already laid out all of my i already had the now dig on this like in the barrel i was ready to pull it out uh and then you didn't laugh and i wasn't prepared for that (laughs) he was so offended i've like it was one of those and i think it was a thing i think it came up a bunch at this party because i think i was maybe the third person who talked to him and i think 
everyone he talked to about it was like, yeah, that movie's terrible. And he was like going around <laughs> everybody at the party to be like, does anybody appreciate this film that I love? No, no, not, not a soul. Um, it pretty universally agreed upon that. Like it, it's trash. It's so funny too, because we're talking about like the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies are to me. The first one is like a pretty good movie. And the second one is just like great. So why second would you one, say the third? Yeah. Like I'm I, I don't know. I, like, it really it really is that's the most confusing thing about it is that like if you say Spider-Man 2 is your favorite movie, I'm not going to bat an eye. Uh I I It's a good movie. I, I, I it is certainly I think it's probably like maybe the best probably, Spider-Man. <laughs> oh, well, it's no. it's the best into the spider verse can, can give it it is by it is not even a remotely close competition for live action the only one that gives it a bit of a run for its money is into the spider verse but like live yeah. action no spider-man 2 is is one of the finest superhero movies ever made which is why it's so funny that you would pick i mean on that is that is absolutely the equivalent of like deadpan being like the godfather 3 is my favorite movie not my favorite godfather movie it's my favorite movie it's just like that's not a serious opinion that's not somebody that's not something that anybody will try to argue in good faith because it can't be done like it's just yeah, not the reason whatever your reasoning is for why it's your favorite movie is not gonna be like the reasoning anyone else would use for why it's not a good movie you well, know <laughs> yeah like and that's so because you it's know like if i watched it when i was 10 and i loved it <laughs> exactly exactly if you're gonna launch into that argument like there is i can i will totally like back down if someone is making the argument that just like i like a thing because it you know it came at a good time in my life it it like like, I, I, I think it is borderline rude to try to think, like, to try to take that from somebody. Mm. But to try to argue that, like, no, no, this is a quality thing that, <laughs> that you, you're actually wrong for not liking it. It's like, mm. Yeah. <laughs> I well, mean, and, no. And, like, yeah, it's, it's one of those where it's kind of like, eh, maybe, <laughs> maybe if you tell someone your favorite movie and they laugh in response... Don't just stop there. Just <laughs> don't keep don't keep telling people it's your favorite movie. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, maybe just think about it and be like, it can still be your favorite movie, but give it some thought. And if you decide it's still your favorite movie, just know that people might assume you're joking <laughs> when you tell them that. Just know that you might be one of the only people in seven point something billion that holds that opinion. Just you got to be ready for that. You got to be re- I mean you're essentially the guy who's like I I'm just saying shit tastes kind of good. You know? Like it's actually kind of like but have you ever tried shit? Like it's not it's not the worst. Like you have to understand. You're just you're one of the only people that thinks that. You're allowed to think that, but just you're you got to understand you're alone, sir. You are alone yeah. in this world. I, I weirdly think there are probably more people who uh, enthusiastically eat feces than enjoy Spider-Man 3. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
science hasn't even invented a term for loving Spider-Man three. We know we know that there's a clinical definition for people who eat shit. We don't know what to call the people who like Spider-Man three. That's just that's too new. That's too new in the field of study. We will never be broken enough to understand that. Okay, well with that. Have a nice week. We were going to do Nilf Manor next week, but we want we Joe are, to be yeah. there. And and, yeah. um, and he had to reschedule. So we will do Nilf Manor eventually. It's coming. It's coming. Um, next week, we do we know? Do you have any? Do you want to surprise me with a random one right now on the end of the show or anything? Um, what are we doing? I don't know. I don't we'll, know. We'll, we'll think we'll, of something. We'll, we'll, it's yeah, going to be bad. It will. It, it will <laughs> I, hey, I can promise you. Fuck, dude. Should we do Spider-Man 3? <laughs> oh, my God. You know what? Fuck it. Let's do Spider-Man 3. Let's just watch Spider-Man 3. <laughs> you know what? Fuck it. Let's just eat this shit. Let's, <laughs> let's just shovel some shit into our mouths. Uh, oh, boy. All right. Well, um... We'll see you next week for Tobey Maguire's best movie. (laughs) We'll see you next week. Now dig on this.